else is different? Your mind is different than her mind. How can you measure a mind? And oh, my question. What was my question? Eating the body. This is a good question. Okay. You should ask about the sleep job. We'll do it later. That's what I'm saying. I feel like I have to ask Rabbi Kaplan that. Maya, this is what I do with you. If we shut the door, you'll will that still make hear it? it. I know, but we'll make it better. <laughs> but yes. But whenever somebody walks in and out, they always forget. Yeah. So All right, ladies. Okay. Ladies and ladies. We are we are flying through the Tanya. We are moving at breakneck speed. Chapter one. Are we even there? <laughs> we are in chapter title one. Title page. We passed the title page. I think we're on page four. Like yesterday? Are we on page four? We we're on page are, six. It depends which edition you have. And this one I have, it's page five. What is it? What or actually page three. So what it, we're on six. We Almost just finished. Chapter two? So we yeah. are, what? Almost at chapter two? Almost at chapter two. Okay. We, are, we are in the middle of the four evil elements of the animal soul. Oh. Which is such an uplifting idea, right? Four evil elements. Okay. So the first evil element we discussed was fire, which has the qualities of consuming and being up and going higher. And that those are expressed in everybody's tendency towards arrogance and anger. We discussed that at great length, yes, how that's bad. And then we discussed water. And water has the tendency to make things expand and to make things adhere. And that is expressed in everyone's tendency to pursue pleasure. And pursuing pleasure, as far as Hasidiska is concerned, is always, always, always bad. <laughs> it's always bad to pursue pleasure. Is pleasure bad? No. No. The pursuit of pleasure is bad, right? Pleasure simply indicates that you've achieved some kind of harmony between you and something. If what you've achieved harmony with is something that is a good thing to achieve harmony with, then the associated pleasure is a good sign. If the thing you've achieved harmony with is bad, that's a bad sign. What would be an example of pleasure that is wrong and inappropriate? Finding somebody's death funny at their funeral, right? Yes. Okay. Would be yeah okay. And so the moral part of you is pained, right? It feels the sense of discord with that other part of you that finds it funny, right? So you're pained by the fact that you're having pleasure. Okay, a lot of people laugh at funerals so That's true. That's why I wanted to say that you find it funny and humorous, not as an involuntary way of like. Not being able to process. Okay. So we're now up to the third element. Okay. So frivolity. Case in point. Scoffing. Case in point. Boasting and idle talk. Which never happens in class here. Do you know the difference? Do you know the difference in teaching you guys and the 18-year-old? at the uh, men's program? The difference between us and a lot. 
everything. Everything, but one is that there is one is that one, one is that there is a significant lack of idle talk in the middle of class here. Oh, yeah. Yes. Wow. Wait, what? what? Yes. Because all of our talk is tends to be related to the topic at hand. Wow. Yes. So is that an invitation to? No, it's just an observation. <laughs> it's not an invitation. It's an observation. Okay. All of these things come from the element of air. Okay. So we have four things here. Four. Frivolity, scoffing, boasting, and idle talk. And they all come from the same basic aspect of the animal soul known as the element of air. Now, we have to know, know what's, what, is, what are these things and what do they have in common and why are they all bad? Okay. Let's start with boasting. Why are we going to start with boasting? Why are we going to start with boasting? Because you chose it. <laughs> yeah, but let's pretend that I'm not being completely arbitrary and I have a reason for it. What is my reason for choosing it? Right, because boasting seems to be related to arrogance, but arrogance is connected to fire and boasting is connected to air. So that just creates a bit of a puzzle, doesn't it? If if these tendencies come from different elements of the soul, then that would mean boasting and arrogance are very different kinds of things, and yet I think most of us would think that ar- boasting is some kind of indication of arrogance or something arrogant people do. Okay. So. Arrogance is fire, but boasting is air. So we're going to start with boasting because if we can get at what boasting is and why it's different than arrogance, then maybe we'll have some clues about the other things and why they're so bad. Okay. Now, let's say you have two arrogant people sitting down or standing, doesn't really matter, and they're talking. And one of them says something good about himself. What does the other one feel the need to do? They have two options. Say something about themselves. More specific. Bash. They could bash it. Put, put the other person down, right? Or alternatively, put, them higher. put themselves higher, right? So they either feel the need, to, you know, they need to be higher, and that can either be by knocking down the person, or by saying something that is much greater than that person, right? So this is, you know, like you know, someone says, like, I once, I don't know, I once ran, really, I once ran, you know, five miles. The person says, five miles. That's nothing. Or like, I ran 10 miles. I mean, that's silly, right? But the basic idea is either you knock down the person or you find something to go higher than the person. That's what arrogance would motivate. Now, is it true that every time people are talking about themselves and how wonderful they are, they're really in a competition of who's better? Or is it the case that sometimes people sit around talking about how wonderful they are and they don't feel the need to put the other person down or to say something that's better than the other person. Does that also happen? Yeah. yeah? Right. Now, so why would people sit around talking about how great they are if they're not trying to like jockey for the top position of the hierarchy? Like, you say why, how you're so great, then I'll say how I'm so great, and then someone will say how they're so great, and I'll go around in a circle, and I'm going to tell amazing stories about how wonderful they are. And, like, nobody's really competing with them to be the best, and, like, everybody appreciates everybody else's stories about how great they are. What's the point of all of that? We have nothing else to talk about. That's right. 
You have nothing else to talk about. It's a way of killing time. It's a way of, it's a way of creating what I like to deem enjoyable emptiness. Small talk. Enjoyable emptiness. Enjoyable emptiness. So, one of the problems with talking about Midas is that because Midas are, as I said before, they have three levels. There's the part that they're intrinsic in you, then there's the feeling of them, and then there's the, the motivation towards action or inaction. They're very hard to talk about because even the most concrete level of Mida is just a motivation towards action, whereas an action is a concrete thing. So the problem is when you talk about Midas, you talk about a behavior and they kind of work backwards. So... Here's the problem. Real life behaviors are almost never motivated by a single midah because we're complicated beings. Okay? Barring extreme cases where one midah is so overpowering and dominant, like usually if someone is throwing a brick at somebody's window, that's motivated solely by anger. Okay? But that's an extreme example. Usually there's multiple things happening at the same time because you need enough of the different aspects of a person to agree or to motivate a certain action or you need one part to be extremely dominant and powerful. That makes sense? So if you have a person who on the one hand has a little bit of arrogance and on the other hand um, enjoys, you know, wasting time and on the other hand um, does see like they should do something productive with their life, those things come together and they tell stories about themselves and rationalize why, you know, rationalize that in their head because it will motivate and inspire people and it does on some level. But really, if it didn't, they would still want to do it anyway. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's more involved. So we're not talking about the actual saying good things about yourself, the behavior. That behavior, by the way, can be motivated by, by just a clinical analysis that somebody needs to hear that. And, 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 and is almost emotionless. We're talking about the tendency of a person just to um, tell tales about themselves um, or about people they're associated with. And not, in a, and not in a way that, again, they're trying to, not because they feel the need to be better than anyone else, but it's like there's this big emptiness, and that emptiness can be kind of dull and awkward, or it can be filled of, you know, interesting little nuggets about what makes my life <laughs> interesting, what makes your life interesting, nice. and, yeah. <laughs> okay. Why is it that people feel the need to talk about um, the news, the the weather. That's right. Why is it that people engage in silly behavior? There is a part of a person which is drawn to things that are meaningless. Not meaningless in some ultimate sense. I mean. Pursuing pleasure is meaningless in some ultimate sense. Meaningless in your, in your own essence, right? We have all sorts of names for this, like hanging out, chilling out, um, tuning out, entertainment. But what we're doing is something which the actual experience of is there's, there's, there's nothing really critical going on here. Nothing really needs to be achieved. Nothing's really important. And that's strangely actually very appealing to people. 
Right? As much as we like to say, and there's certain like speakers that make a deal, that human beings are driven towards meaning and purpose, which is true, we are also, I don't know, equally, maybe more, maybe less, also driven to meaninglessness and emptiness. But a, a, a cold, dark, empty meaninglessness, that's not very pleasant, right? You want your meaninglessness to be decorated with like sparkly things and you know, gumdrops, right? Yeah, cupcakes. No, cupcakes is pursuing pleasure, right? <laughs> right. But like, you know, what happened in, in, in a particular in, industry or what happened in, uh, in politics or, I don't know, what the neighbors are doing. Anything that makes the meaninglessness a little more um, vivid. Not meaningful, but it doesn't become meaningful. Because, because if it became meaningful, all of a sudden all the pressures of responsibility and accomplishing and making sure you're doing things right would all come in. That's the thing that is so... You know, it, it, let, let's put it this way. When we say something is meaningful, yeah, we often use that as a, as a word without thinking a lot about what it means. If something is meaningful, what kind of characteristics does it have? I'll give you one. It's demanding. It places obligations on you. Do you like having obligations? Sometimes, that's right. So the side of you that doesn't like obligations, like in principle, not because the obligations are hard to do, just the idea of obligations themselves, the idea that I should be doing something, that I, you know, that I, I have, should have something to show for myself, whatever, part of just no, but I don't want that. What's that side of our animal so-called? The element of air. You can see why it's called the element of air, because describe air. Right, it's kind of like, it's there, but you can't really touch it, you can't really see it, it's just like, it takes up space without like really being anything. It's like the non-meaningful part. Right. And that non, right, that, that, that being drawn to an enjoyable kind of an emptiness. Yeah. So then why is air so essential for life? If because there's, compared to the because remember, we're saying, we're saying that all the elements, the elements are, are patterns that exist in everything. So in the negative side of the animal soul, there are four elements. In the positive side of everything, there's going to be four elements. In holiness, there's going to be four elements. The elements are not intrinsically good or bad. They're, they're yeah, they're expressions of things. So in, the, in, the, in as much as the animal soul has an evil side to it, it has four basic modes of that negativity. So air, actually, in many places, in Hasidus is described as, as extremely vital, extremely important. Um, I'll just, you mentioned this. Later on, the author is going to compare the, the, the godly soul to the flame of a candle and speak about how the, the flame needs oil because we remember how the fire consumes and so what the oil is, blah, blah, blah. And Tanya doesn't get into this, but in other places in Chassidus, it makes the observation that as much as the flame needs oil, it also needs air. And so there's a tremendous discussion of what is the air. If your soul is a flame and the mitzvahs and the Torah is the oil, what's the air? So air is not bad. What is the air? No, that's negative air. Oh, yeah. You want the, the, the air of the God, the air of the godly soul, the willingness to do whatever it takes. Because you know the willing. What does the willingness to do whatever it takes looks like? It doesn't look like anything, right? What does air look like? It doesn't look like anything, right? You just see right through it. So there is there is a positive kind of an air when somebody has the sense that I am willing to do whatever it takes, become whatever I need to become put in whatever need. Like, I have no, I, I'm not coming with any preconditions to anything whatsoever. Right? 
Like I'm, I'm like I'm a blank. I'm a self-motivated blank slate, if you will. Okay, that's that's the air of the godly soul. But we're not talking about that. Okay, so you can tell that the Altebra wrote the Tanya in the 1700s for Jews living in Eastern Europe. Do you know how you can tell? He didn't include entertainment in this list. He did not include entertainment in this list. What is entertainment? Yeah. And if you recall, last week, I, um, someone said about how society is all about water. My personal opinion, this is my personal opinion, so take it or leave it, is that Western society is much more of a connected to the air, which is basically, fundamentally, things don't matter as long as, as you go through the emptiness, it's a pleasant experience. And everything, the entire economy and the culture is driven around that. That's my take on it. You don't have to accept that. Okay. So does that make sense? The combination, frivolity, boasting, idle talk, they all have the same basic core drive underneath them. Anyone have any questions about that? Yes? No? Okay. What didn't I explain? Scoffing. Okay. Why is scoffing in this list? Scoffing doesn't seem to be like that. Scoffing doesn't have that whole, you know, rain, you know, sparkly gumdrops thing to it. Scoffing seems to be quite vicious. Yeah. Why would scoffing be put on this list? Because it adds nothing. That's true. Right, but why is that? So then, just you're, you can just subsume that in idle chat and idle and idle talk. It's the same basic idea, right? If it's idle talk, is idle talk. It's, right? Why do you want to put it down? This is good. Scoffing is because you want to put it down. Why would you want to put it down? Remember, we're not talking about persons motivated to being arrogant. If I'm in that kind of air mode and someone comes along and starts preaching, and I'm using the word preaching intentionally here, preaching about the significance and importance of some very meaningful thing, I have a bit of a dilemma, don't I? Because I do have a part of me that does respond to meaning, but I have this other part of me that would like the meaning to go away. How can I resolve this dilemma? By taking the meaningful thing and making it not meaningful, right? If I can, if I can, if I can at least in my own experience of it take away its meaning, now do I have that dilemma anymore? In other words, scoffing is always motivated really by the same thing, which is something is um, 
radiating its meaning to me and I'm in a state where I'm not interested in meaning. So how do I defend myself against this imposition of meaning? This imposition of duty, this imposition of responsibility that something act, what I do actually matters right now. Mock it. Like, how do you know that you're not, t- like, well, it'd be, like, how do you know if you're, like, if an argument with someone, like, a really, really serious argument? Because people can have serious arguments, right? No two people's faces are the same, and no two people's minds are the same. So people disagree about stuff. How do you know if this argument is constructive or not? So there's, like, an easy way that people think, which is false, which is, are you, is, you know, are you being respectful, and is it pleasant, and, like, you... you I mean, that's nice if that happens, but you could have a very vicious argument. And I mean vicious, and still could be constructive. If, you, if you're willing to accept that you have to go. And take the other way and apply it to yourself. How do we know if that's happening or not? Because it doesn't always come out through speaking nicely. If you're talking about the idea rather than the person. All those things are good when they happen, but they cannot happen. If you think about the other I'm talking much more in the basic and this is by the way this is good marriage advice that I'm giving you because not all arguments are, are, are happen in the way where people like respectfully talk and make sure that they understand each other's differences like sometimes emotions get very hot and yet even in that even in when it becomes very hot and very vicious there can still be it can still be constructed there's a certain line that if you cross it's going to be destructive and by the way you can cross that line and still have all of the uh the, the superficial aspects of respect. Yeah. So maybe if you're laughing at someone else's idea or dismissing it, that's not constructive. So constructive is like, even if like somebody says something and then the other person starts yelling at them, but it shows that they took seriously what the person said, that it felt that they had to respond seriously. Right. As, like, when people start doing things like speaking sarcastically, rolling their eyes, making a point of tuning out, indicating that what you're saying doesn't even demand my response. At that point, there's nothing constructive can come of that. On the other hand, if people are yelling and screaming at each other, I'm not guaranteeing that anything will constructively happen, but what's still, what's still the case? Both parties feel that what the other party is saying is somehow something they have to contend with, something they have to deal with. And okay, now it's a question of how to go about that. And sometimes, by the way, interestingly enough, I'm not saying this is a strategy, but sometimes just the arguing it out long enough, even without actually practicing any nice respectful talking techniques, but just the fact that you're contending with it, eventually you start to like really hear the other side of the issue. But you can't be doing that if in your mind you're, you're saying this doesn't matter, this is stupid. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's a, a, a nice English word that illustrates this, which is contempt. If you have contempt for someone or for what someone says, nothing constructive will come out from it. If you hate it, if you despise it, okay, that's a, that's a long and painful process to work through, but something can happen. Okay. Has anyone ever watched a debate? Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you noticed that debates tend to um, be, like, success debates tends to have to do with having these uh, good lines which basically show how the other side is silly and stupid. So what's not really happening in the debate then? 
What? No validation. No validation, right? There's not contending with what the other person's saying at all, right? It's basically, how can I make what the other person's saying stupid enough that I don't even need to respond to really that, really what their position is, really where they're coming from, okay? So do you imagine that those two people are going to come to any sort of meeting of minds that way? No. So scoffing has many forms, scoffing, but what all scoffing has in common is there's a sense of, I don't want this to matter, and so I'm going to relate to it and project and, and act in such a way to take away its meaning, to take away its relevance, to take away its significance. And then I don't have to contend with the fact that it's meaningful because it's, I don't have to contend with what it's demanding of me. I don't have to have a response. Yeah, does that make sense? Okay. There are some people, if you insult them, they're not offended. Sometimes that's because they have such a, you know, they have such a good um, sense of who they are, right? That your insult just doesn't hurt them that much. That's probably a healthy thing, right? Okay. You know, some people, they're not offended when you insult them. You know why? Because your opinion doesn't count anyway. Like, you're not significant enough to hurt my feelings. Right? Like I can't, I can't get an ego boost by being on top of you, and I can't get offended by, by, by you being be- by you being better than me because just you don't matter. You're not significant enough to work to, 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 to get a response from me. Is that fire or is that air? That's air, because fire you do matter. Because in fire, I, right? In fire, the more people I can step on top of, the higher I am. Saying you don't matter means you. Just, it doesn't matter. In other words, there's a kind of deep cynicism about everybody else that if this can go to an extreme, right? This is, and people who feel that everything is, every, you can make a joke about anything, you can mock anything, nothing is sacred. Nothing, nothing really requires an apology. Now that's if you take it to an extreme. Yeah. Are you familiar with the fact that, it, that um, there's a, there's, a, there's a genre of entertainment called comedy. You familiar with that? Mm-hmm. And you're familiar that in every era of the mo- every, every era since comedy has become part of the Western world, there's always two sides to the comedy where people are saying, it's, but it's comedy. And the other people are saying, it's, but it's offensive. And you're violating on sacred values, right? And like wherever that line is, just it's arbitrary based on you know, the particular developments in the culture. If we were taking what the Tanya says seriously, how do we understand that? That's the conflict between the side of the animal soul that says, this is not really important, this is not really meaningful, it can be made fun of, versus the side that says, there is something meaningful here, there's something sacred here. And you are undermining something by treating it so callously, so treating it so casually. Now, Is there anything wrong then with scoffing and making fun of something? Sometimes. So the way, the way the Talmud puts it is that that scoffing is always prohibited except for one exception. There's one time when scoffing is permitted, it's acceptable and even encouraged. Idolatry. Idolatry. Something which truly is meaningless should be exposed as such. 
Does that make sense? If something if something's pretending to be important and really isn't, then it, we're doing everybody a favor by exposing it as unimportant. And that's the only time. That's the only time. Correct. As a general rule, there are exceptions to that depending on very specific circumstances. Um, but as a general rule, no. Yeah. It's just like the only time the Torah encourages it or permits it? Both. Because they're different. They are different. And not only does it permit it, but it even encourages it. Okay, so if that's the case, then why is scoffing here as listed as a negative trait? Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, right? I mean, we'll set that question aside. What about idle talk? Idle talk is always bad. It's always bad to sit around and schmooze. Really? Like, really? I mean, you do realize... I just want you to know that at some point you're going to get married and your husband has an obligation to learn Torah. And you want him to come back with that response? I have an obligation to learn Torah. I can't schmooze. I'm allowed. Sorry. Like, I don't know. Find someone else to talk to. Yeah. You're going to accept that line of reasoning? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. What about frivolity? Like, like, like silliness that's never appropriate? It's never appropriate to be funny? Like, ever? No, it's an important So then why is he listing these as negative qualities? Because these are all things that, that if you are pursuing the same thing with pleasure, it's like the pursuit of pleasure. Right. It's, it's the behaviors. There's nothing wrong with these as behaviors. Being silly is not a problem. Scoffing is not a problem. I mean, there are times when scoffing is permitted and even encouraged. It's, we're talking about the drive and tendency towards it, right? The part of me that, that is drawn to scoff is not sensitive to the difference between something which is truly meaningless and something which is meaningful, but its meaning is getting, is getting on my nerves, right? The drive to idle talk is different than actual idle talk. In fact, actual idle talk, when it's not driven by idle talk, might not be idle at all. In fact, is it not the case that people need to engage a certain amount of talking in order to build close relationships? And if you are aware of that and you make time to do that and you're not even picking about the subject matter but you make sure that you spend enough time to talk so that your relationships maintain a certain level of closeness, it's hard to call that idle. It's quite constructive. Right? Even though the information is not important but the act of communicating is important. But that's very different than the drive towards idle talk which is to fill up space and kill time. Yeah. You hear the, the difference? We're not talking about behaviors. Right, but we can't say it's like a pursuit of boasting. Like, what is that? It's, it's the drive? It's the drive to boast. It's the drive to like, to like fill up, fill up what's going on with interesting stories about yourself. Not because if there's a reason if, the, if there's a reason to say something, if there's reason to do something, it's entirely different. That, the, the, if, there's a, if you're doing something because there's a reason to do it, the situation the calls for that, then that's not necessarily an indication of your midas. I'll give you an example. Um, when is it okay, according to Torah, to be angry at somebody? I'm not getting into whether it's permitted or permitted, but like all things being equal, is it, when is it okay to genuinely be angry with somebody? No. You know what the answer is? Never. 
when is it okay for other people to give other people the impression that you're angry with them? When it's educational. Now, that's an edu- when is it educational? We can debate and discuss that, right? But there are times when it is educational. By the way, being angry at people doesn't always mean that you're yelling and screaming at them. But why isn't the word anger not like frustration? Because those, those are semantics in English. And if you want to know that the real thing is the... Um, I don't know the origin of the word anger, but the origin of the word frustration is that frustration actually means an obstacle that you can't get past. Like this thing is frustrating you, if you can't get past it. And then the associated feeling of anger and not being able to get past the obstacle became called frustrating. And then the original meaning tended to drop out. And now, because we have two words that mean anger from slightly different contexts, we started developing nuances between them. And that's a uniqueness in the English language. In Hebrew, what you will find is that we tend to have more one word that covers a range of meanings. Although not always. When it comes to like joy, yeah, it's not true. But it's like, as far as I, as far as I know, um, and I'm not a big expert, there are three words for anger um, that have differences. Peda, Kas, and Rodriguez. And basically, there's being, you know, like when you're holding a grudge, and it's like, but it, it, it so that's like Peda. You know, when you're really, really upset when you hold your tongue, that's more like Kas. And you know, like when you feel so upset you don't hold your tongue and you say all those nasty things to people. That's more like rogues, but those are degrees that's of the same. Rogue, it's called rogues in Hebrew. So in this case, which? But in, but but that's if we're making specific. But we can also use the word kas, which is anger, as a general term to cover all of it. Okay. And that's the way I was using it here. Okay, so if you're talking about it, if you're talking about the, if you're talking about sitting around and and talking about and talking about things that aren't that important, that behavior might be very very important. I'll tell you a story about this. Um, we're coming to the holiday of Sukkot, and on Sukkot we have guests. You know about the guests that we have on Sukkot? Yes. Yeah. We have the seven shepherds come and visit. <laughs> you don't know about the seven shepherds? Okay. The seven shepherds are Abraham, Abraham, first shepherd, also the first Jew, Yitzchak, Yaakov, who's next? No, no. Who's the fourth shepherd? Moshe. Moshe. Who's the fifth shepherd? Uh, Aaron, his brother, the high, first high priest. Who's the sixth shepherd? Yosef. Yosef, this, Yosef of the multi, what is it called? The multicolored coat? Technicolored coat, right? And then finally, King David. He's the seventh shepherd. These are the these are very significant leaders of the Jewish people. They come to all of our houses? They come to Which all of our houses. Why is Yosef because they each tapped into a different divine attribute, and, and they come in the order of the divine attributes that they represented, not their historical order. It's real Extra two seats at your table. And, and then there's a tradition in Chabad that also, the, starting from the Val Shemtov, the Rebbe's the Val Shemtov, and then the success of the Mag could also come. Okay. You need to leave two extra seats at your No. <laughs> you can't take things for granted here. Okay, so the story goes like this. There was once a Hasidic rabbit, yes. Why? We don't count the Friedrich rabbit. Right. Do you want, like, the real reason or the Hasidic reason? The real reason. The real reason is because the person who said this was the Friedrich rabbit. 
<laughs> so he's like, all the rabbis of the past, they come visit, and then it worked out nicely. That's like, the, 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 the deeper reason is that the chassidim felt that, that, that a guest means that, they, you know, they're a guest, they're not, they're not part of your, they're not part of your family, but the rebellion, the rabbi's like, he's not a guest, he's like, not a guest in our house, so it doesn't count. Rebbe Rashab. Yes. He couldn't say this just because he didn't have the right number of people, right? So, I have a, I have a whole theory about this, but because it's my theory and it's now way off the topic of the class, I'm going to keep it to myself. Oh, I have a question. Okay. So, there was once a Chassidic Rebbe whose son said, I would like to actually see Avram Avinu and Yitzhak, these guests. I don't want to just, you know, it's nice that they come spiritually. I want to actually see them. And he said, okay. So, go to this town. And there's a certain Jew there, I don't know, we'll call him uh, Beryl. And go to Beryl's house for Sukkot. And if you go, say in Beryl's house for Sukkot. What? Interesting choice of name. Do you want a different name? It's just like... We no. call me Ankle. <laughs> Still an interesting choice. Uh, I have a friend Ankle. Frank? It's hard to imagine. that. Yankle. Let's go with Beryl. Yankle, but like, it's like the kind of facetious okay. story. His name's Yankle. So, so he, goes to, he goes to this Beryl's house. Turns out Beryl's a chicken farmer. You? Beryl was a chicken yeah. farmer. A very simple chicken <laughs> farmer. Like, he, didn't, he barely knew how to read Hebrew. And the son of the Hasidic Rebbe says, can I stay with you for Sukkot? And uh, Beryl says, sure, why not? And um, he's used to being by his father, and there's a whole tish, and there's a whole, you know, it's a very spiritual experience. Now he's at Beryl's house, and they go to Shul. Nothing special happens in Shul. They come home, they're sitting in the Sukkah, and um, Beryl doesn't say any, any Torah because he doesn't know any Torah, and he's like, like they're sitting and eating the food, and, and it... it and this son of the Hasidic Rebbe is like waiting for like, you know, Avram Yitzhak Yaakov to come and to... And he just, it's torturing him. There's a total lack of spirituality. And um, then there's a knock on the door of the sukkah. And uh, there's another Jew who's uh, like also a lo- local chicken farmer from some other part of town. And he finished his meal and he says, no, oh, I-, I finished my meal. Uh, well, I thought you might want to schmooze, you know what I mean? Night is young. So they sit down and they schmooze. And what do they talk about? Two chicken farmers. Chicken. Chicken farming, yeah. And the Hasidic son is like, oh, when is this going to end? Anyway, Avram doesn't show up. The next night, second night of Sukkot, because outside land visitors, there's two nights of Sukkot, the holiday. They go to Shul, nothing special happens. And they sit there, they have the meal. Again, no Torah, no spirituality, no anything. And uh, after the meal, as they're cleaning up, somebody knocks on the door of the sukkah. Another local chicken farmer finishes his meal and says, you know, want to schmooze the nice young, they sit, they talk. Again, they talk about chicken farming again. The chassidic rabbi's son is putting his head in his hand. Third night of sukkahs. After they make Havdalah, another chicken farmer comes by to talk. And he's, that's it, he's had it. <laughs> so much chicken farming can you hear about? So... He says, I'm sorry, I actually can't stay the whole sukkah. And he goes back to his father. And his father says, you're back so soon? And his father says, yeah. I didn't see Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov. He said, what? I didn't see anybody. There was no one there. It was the most hor- horrible experience. It wasn't, there wasn't anything joyous about it at all. It wasn't spiritual. Nobody came. So there was just, every night, some other chicken farmer came. They spoke about chickens. And so his father, the Chassidic Rebbe, says, if your grandson only knows about chicken farming, then what do you talk to your grandson about? Chicken farming, right? What do you talk to little kids about? Things that little kids are interested in, right? What do you talk to 
right? So if Avram is going to come and talk to one of his grandchildren, who happens to only be a chicken farmer, not know anything else, then what is he going to talk to him about? Because Avram cares about chicken farming? No, because Avram cares about his grandson. He said, you missed the whole point. You think that the, 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 the shepherds, the forefathers, are going to come and they're going to talk about lofty spiritual things. They talk about lofty spiritual things to people that get lofty spiritual things. But if you care about connecting to someone, you talk about things they can understand and appreciate. Well, if that's what you're talking about, whatever you're talking about, it's not coming from the place of idle chatter in your soul. It might sound like idle chatter to someone listening in, but it's not coming from that place. It's coming from a deep desire to connect and connect in a way that the other person appreciates. And so you speak about things that they can connect to and relate to. And it's the same thing. Being silly is not a problem. Being silly can be a very, very helpful, important thing. But the, the, the drive to be silly, that doesn't come from a good place. And so the same thing scoffing. If a person makes an assessment that this is something idolatrous, this is something that's utterly meaningless, pretending to be something important, and then makes a conscious choice to mock it and scoff it, that's different than giving into this tendency of destroying meaning wherever you find it because it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. I would say, I, I, my answer is that my, one of my sons asked me what politics is when he was about eight. And so I had to come up with an answer of what politics is. So I told him, what are the three sins you have to give up your life for? Do you know the three sins? Idolatry, immorality, and murder. So I said, politics is basically that, but on a minor level. It's people trying to kill each other and acting immoral. <laughs> <laughs> and desecrating sacred values. That's politics. <laughs> That's my opinion. Obviously, to the degree to which you have the ability to vote and you have responsibility to act in a, in a, in a, in a, in a moral and ethical way in how you exercise your right to vote, etc. But like beyond that, yeah, it's some combination of all the negative things. Okay. Fine. That was the element of air. Now we're ready to move on to the fourth and final element. Okay. I believe we have to turn the page, if you haven't already turned the page. And sloth and melancholy from the element of earth. How do you like those words, sloth and melancholy? What is sloth? Lazy. That is a sloth. In English, we have this great thing where we put articles in front of nouns. So we know that they're nouns. What? Yeah, lethargy. Right, we went from sloth to lethargy. <laughs> okay. See, I'm an American, so we just say English. We just say lazy. Because <laughs> we use simple words. I have a question. Yeah. Did the Christian-like seven deadly sins come from some of these sins? No. No, I do not know where they came from. But my, my guess is that they don't show up in Christianity until well after Christianity broke away from Judaism. It sounds like the kind of thing that the early church fathers would come up with. Um, so, but that's just a random guess. Okay, laziness, sloth, and melancholy. Okay, we'll take, we'll take, um, lazy. I think laziness is pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Yeah? Okay, so I'm gonna just add a little bit. Okay. 
What is the difference between laziness and all of the other attributes that we mentioned, all the other tendencies that we mentioned? You're actively going and doing something. And all of them you would actively go and do something, and if you're not doing something, it's because something else is competing against it. So let's just use example. If I'm not doing a mitzvah, and that not doing mitzvah is coming from the element of fire, that's because for some reason my anger, my arrogance is like opposed to doing the mitzvah. Right? Or my desire for cupcakes is opposed to fasting on Yom Kippur. Right? Or my desire for idle chatter is, going to get, is overpowering the importance of studying Torah, whatever the case might be, right? But there's, there's basically there's a conflict of interests. I could value the Torah and mitzvahs, but there's something else which is pulling me to value something else, to want to do something else. Okay. With laziness, it really isn't like that. Laziness is just, I would do it other than the fact that it takes energy. And because it takes energy, I'm not going to do it. Okay. So is laziness easier to deal with? than the other ones we mentioned are harder to deal with? Why harder? There's no reason. Right. In one sense, it's harder because there's no reason. So it's easier. One second. In one sense, the, the, they're both correct. I know. <laughs> they're harder and easier. Yes. In one sense, it's harder because laziness, there's nothing really to address. There's not like some underlying issue. It's just that it takes energy. And so the more things take energy, the more the laziness objects to it. And in that sense, like you could be really into Torah and mitzvahs and laziness will still be a problem. Like you could really be 100% motivated and devoted to God and still contend with laziness because laziness is not, it, it, the issue is the, the exertion of energy itself rather than, rather than specifically what you're doing and why you're doing it. Okay? So it, in that sense, it's like an ongoing perpetual problem that's much harder to ever get rid of. On the other hand, because all laziness is is just a resistance to expending energy, in practice, overcoming laziness is much more straightforward. You see what I'm saying? In other words, in a certain sense, like you can like work on your anger or your arrogance or your hedonism and like make progress. It's hard to work on your laziness and get progress. Because laziness is this drive which is like no matter how much energy you're exerting, it's too much. But on the other hand, there's nothing deep that needs to be work through and overcome. It's just like, and it's a simple solution, by the way, to laziness is starting. Do you know why? Laziness. That's right. And so if you get over that, the laziness is basically, you, it almost always is the case that once you've started, the laziness is no longer relevant. What do you compare it with laziness? To other things like arrogance or anger. Now, if you're talking about something that's an involved, drawn-out process, then you can have many starting points. Like you engage, but then you pull out again, and you take a break, and you have to start again. Is it everything like that, though? It is. So a lot of the, so dealing with laziness, it, it, it has this other quality. You're overcoming just this dead weight, if you will, right? Which is why it would be connected to the idea of earth. Okay, that one's simple and straightforward enough. Now we have melancholy. Okay, what is melancholy? Sadness. Okay. Now, why is sadness evil? Because you can't serve Hashem with joy. That's right. 
Because you can't serve Hashem with joy when you're sad. No, because you can't serve Hashem with joy when you're sad. Okay, so even though there's a lot of chapters that discuss sadness in Tanya, I wanted, because I mean, that's, we're not going to get that for a long time, I wanted to spend some time talking about it now. First thing, sadness is a normal part of human experience. Okay? If you feel sad, there is nothing wrong with you. You're not broken because you feel sad. Um, it's like being tired being tired now could tiredness indicate something is wrong with you you mean how would you tell if tiredness indicates something is wrong with you if it's constant right if you're tired at 10 o'clock at night because you got up at 5 in the morning and did a lot of stuff you're normal right but if you're always tired no matter how much sleep you get yeah no matter what you know no, no matter how much or little energy you're exerting, then what does that probably indicate? Something's, Something's wrong, right? And that could be a range of things, right? I'm not a doctor, but that's the thing to get checked out. Okay. okay. Similarly, sadness as something, it features part of people's lives. So the fact that it's considered here evil is because in the context of serving God, sadness is, is always counterproductive. And we'll talk about what that is. But it's one of the saddest we're talking about is it's just a normal thing of sadness. So for instance... Um, if someone you care about God forbid dies how do people feel? does that mean there's something wrong with them? no okay so why is that being labeled here as evil? yeah but sadness is not a behavior that's the thing the other ones were all behavior sadness is just purely a feeling No, although, actually, definitely not. And I want to explain soon why, why no, definitely not. No, if a person like, loses someone they care about and they're sad, like, that's a normal thing. The problem is, can they serve God joyously while they're in that state? Okay, so, so what I want you to appreciate is that when we're saying these things are, these, the, the, the sadness is evil, the evil in sadness how do I put this? It's purely religious. It's not like there's something like bad about a person because they feel sadness. On the other hand, or wrong with a person. On the other hand, what if you have a tendency to always see things negative in everything? All the time, no matter what. That's not sad. That's not sadness. That's something else. Okay? You feel sadness too. Okay. I'm going to... I'm going to uh, venture it's outside. Sadness, it's the, it's when it becomes like an inner bit, when it, you're not able to take sadness and like frame it, it just spills out into everything, that's when it's like. Right. So, I want to put it to you this way. Everyone knows the difference between seasons and the weather? I mean, the weather changes from day to day, from different times of the day, but the seasons last for a long time. Okay. If there is a, 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 uh, uh, a sad a sadness that a person experiences and the associated negativity and pessimism and lack of interest in things 
that becomes like the mood they're in, the season of their life that goes on for long, extended periods of time, there's something wrong that needs help. And then there's something else, which is sometimes you're sad because stuff happened that elicits sadness. That's normal. Okay? The way those things are dealt with is different. But for the purposes of the Tanya, even the normal so-called healthy kind of sadness is problematic. Why? You can't serve God with joy. Now, I'm going to give you an extreme example. Okay? Someone mentioned the laws of mourning, yeah? Okay. When are you not allowed to mourn? On Shabbos. When else are you not allowed to mourn? On Yom Tif, on holidays. Okay. Now, what this means is, as important as the mourning period is, helping a person deal with the sadness and all of that stuff, at the end of the day, that is suddenly, that is, that, is, that is secondary to the obligation to experience delight and joy on Shabbos and Yom Tov, on Shabbos and the holidays. Now, is that an easy thing for a person to do? No. Okay, but right now we're just describing. We're not judging people, okay? There was, so this is the extreme, I don't remember his name, but there was a man, Lubavitch, um, who lived in Crown Heights, and he had a, a lot of kids. I don't remember how many kids. Something like eight, nine, ten, something in that range. Relatively close together. And over Cholomite Sukkot, the intermediate days of Sukkot, his wife passed away. Now, the halacha is, by the way, that there's no mourning during Sukkot. So the mourning period starts after Sukkot. Now, what happens at the end of Sukkot? Anyone know? Like the holidays? Yeah, you have Sukkot and Shemina Tzeres and Torah, the most joyous day of the year. So, his, the, so the Torah tells him, when is he allowed to start mourning? After Simchas Torah. So that means from now until Simchas Torah is over, he has to go through that as if? Okay. Um, when he, he was in... People... This, the, um, the, the custom that the Rebbe instituted on Simchas Torah is that people who are able to should go to other shoals and do the kafas, do the dancing in those shoals, and then come back to 770 later to increase the joy. So he, he took all of his kids because he didn't have anyone else to watch his kids, and he went to some other shoal and he danced the kafas there. And apparently he really did all the, the inner stuff of getting in touch with the inner godliness of his soul because by the time he got back to, some, he got back to 770 and there's like people, people who remember this event because like, like, like his face was shining and he was like he was like on cloud nine he like somehow reached some kind of spiritual transcendence and he was dancing and people thought like, he, like, like this person is in such a state of joy how is that possible and the answer is because when you have to overcome darkness, you need a greater light. And if the Torah says, now I have to serve Hashem with joy, and even the idea of mourning to process the sadness is not allowed. I have to just joy, joy, joy. He didn't pretend to be joyous. He tried to get to that place where he was joyous inside, get himself with the soul, and he was able to achieve that, which is an amazing thing. It, what? This is exactly what I want to get to. If the, there, is a, there is a level which we learn about Judaism with an ulterior motive, which is that we want to be healthy. We have some notion of what healthy is. And there's a the question that like, Judaism being God's wisdom will help us be healthy. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but it is limiting. Because what happens if God's wisdom 
in his great and infinite wisdom is that we should transcend our notions of our own limitations. Then we have a problem because I'm looking for God's wisdom to help me achieve this thing, this image in my mind of being so-called healthier. And God is trying to teach me how to transcend myself. If I'm interested in being healthy, you can't really label sadness as a negative trait. Because there's a certain amount of sadness in certain degrees, certain places, which is healthy and normal, and that's how normal human beings function. And as long as it doesn't become problematic, okay. But if there's some idea of really transcending ourselves, which is what serving God with joy is, then sadness in principle is an evil thing. Okay? And there's a tension here. I want to be very clear there's a tension here. I can speak about the negativity of arrogance and I don't have to get religious. Because we all understand that arrogance, it has something, we can feel it. We can feel the negativity in just scoffing and tearing down things that are sacred and important, right? But sadness, if my approach is that I'm trying to be as a healthy and as functional and as integrated human being as I can, then once I have that, then it's good. But maybe God's wisdom is that I'm capable of transcending going beyond the limitations of what a human being is. I'm able to achieve something more godly, more divine. And it's in that context, sadness is always a negative thing. Okay, now, it's very important to understand that because when Chassidus speaks about sadness, they are taking for granted as a general rule that the person is un, is, 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 has a healthy relationship to the sadness. So we're not talking about a person who's suffering from mental illness or something like that. And that the issue with the sadness is, is the fact that despite the fact that this is a normal and healthy and expected response, it's preventing them from transcending their human limitations and touching something more godly that they have inside of them. Now, remember last week we spoke about the Arizal? And I told you how did the Arizal um, get to be the Arizal to get all those great revelations? Kabbalah, do you remember? He worked on himself. Oh, specifically, what did he work on himself? He looked like, at the text and he like, analyzed every single detail. Every single detail of the Zohar, but there was another thing. He served Hashem with joy. Now, that's very nice. You don't think he ever had a bad day? You don't think things ever went wrong for him? You don't think he ever lost money? You don't think he never had anyone who was sick? You don't think he ever lost anyone he loved? So how can you do every mitzvah with, 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 with tremendous joy if stuff happens in your life? What's the answer? You have to be in some way transcending your normal human limitations. And so the idea of always serving Hashem with joy means that there is this idea of moving beyond the limits that we have. And there's Tanya devotes a lot of chapters to discussing this, 26, 27, 28, 29. And I want to just be clear, in that sense, sadness is a problem. But in the sense of like, what's real bad if you're sad because something happened? Like, I mean, as much as you're a regular, normal human being, there's nothing wrong with feeling sad from time to time. Which now, I know it's everything like they're just describing, but now I want to do something that's a little more practical. How problematic is it really to feel sadness, according to the Tanya? Yeah. Really? Like, how bad is it to feel sad? Yeah. Did we say that women are exempt from situation? No. Women are exempt for a totally different reason. It's not a time bound mitzvah. How bad is it to feel sadness? 
from the Tanya's perspective? How bad? Really bad. It's the worst? That's right. Which means, if the joy you're working on is like a minimal level of joy, then minimal levels of sadness are not the biggest deal. In other words, you can't, it's like, if something is a problem because of what it prevents, then you need to see is it actually preventing that. Right? In other words, Sadness is not evil in like, in, it's, not like, it's not like an evil thing in of it. It's evil because if I'm sad, I can't serve Hashem with joy. Okay, but now the question is, how much joy would I be serving Hashem with that the sadness is preventing? If the answer is not much, well then apparently sadness is not really the issue here. So in other words, there's, let me, let me give you is, is Is it bad to owe a lot of money? Yeah. What? Not intrinsically, why? In fact, it can be very good, right? That's how a lot of people make lots of money. You take out loans and then you do something with the money and then you, right, make a lot of money. So the problem is when the amount of money you owe prevents you from actually running a financially stable life, then it's a problem, right? Okay. So if somebody is running a business that rakes in a profit in the tens of millions of dollars, is it a problem that they have loans out for millions of dollars? They're, they're making tens of millions in profit, but they have a line of credit of, a million, of millions of dollars. It's not a problem. It's a perfectly sustainable situation. Okay? So you have to evaluate, look at the whole picture. If a person is saying, you know, I lost my job and I feel sad right now, it's like, okay, is that a big deal? I don't know, probably not. Because, like, you'll process it and you'll go back to serving God with joy and more or less the way you're able to, that's not a big deal. Now, what if you're somebody who's able to serve God with joy in a very, very powerful way, then that little bit of sadness can be a real problem. Right? So the, the, the negativity in sadness, or, and this is why I can go back to laziness. Lazy, how, when, when is laziness a problem? To the degree it prevents you from doing something, right? Like, I would do it other than the fact that I feel lazy. So these two qualities, what makes them so bad is not that they themselves are bad, but if you want to use the word frustrating, is that they're frustrating qualities. They literally oppose genuine service of God. And so they're only a problem to the degree to which they oppose genuine service of God. But their mere existence is not, so, is not necessarily a problem. If I can, if I, feel a little bit of sadness, but it doesn't take away from my ability to serve Hashem with joy, because like, my ability to serve Hashem with joy is also quite limited, because I'm just the beginning of really growing and appreciating Torah and mitzvahs. So I don't think like saying I should say, oh, it's not okay for me ever to feel sad about anything. Now, if I'm via Rizal, and I allow myself like 10 minutes of feeling sad about something, that could seriously impact the joy that I was feeling. So these things are much more proportional. Does that make sense? In other words, they're not... These things, are not, these things are not bad because they're just bad. They're bad because when you are lazy or when you are sad, then you are not expressing and, and, and allow, you're, not, you're not able to engage in an output of energy with joy in serving Hashem. That's the problem with those things. Yeah. So if you let it manifest that way. Yeah. So is it then permissible for like, someone who doesn't care about serving Hashem to well, I don't say 
I wouldn't say it's permissible, but I would say like, I, I would say that I would say laziness is not the issue that we need to like. Yeah, that's not you know that, that's not the, the issue. I mean, it'll become an issue very quickly once they start doing stuff, trying to do stuff that's important. Yeah. In other words, it. it, it you could read the Tanya from this, and you could walk away with the sense that, okay, being sad is a sin. It's like, like eating pork. It's bad. You should never do something. Or you could learn it, which, is, which I think is wrong. Or you could learn it and say that there is something that is good, serving God with joy, and the degree of sadness you feel inhibits that. So the more you want to grow in serving God with joy, the more you better have a solution for not being sad. But pre-reactivation, not being sad, should never be like a goal in and of itself. In fact, paradoxically, when one becomes obsessed with not being sad, you know what it tends to make one? Sad. Yes? What are the characteristics of Earth that have to do with sadness? Well, have you ever seen a rock? Yeah. What does it do? Nothing. That's right. Okay. Have you ever seen someone full of joy? Do they look like a rock? Or like the opposite of a rock? That's why. The same thing with laziness. Heavy things that just sit there and do nothing. Okay, this is kind of a weird question, but like, why does God care if we serve him with joy? Like, is it because God wants us to serve him with joy? Is it for our benefit or is it for Hashem's? Like, why does that even matter? Um... There are three reasons why it matters. Number one, if you don't serve God with joy, then you end up falling victim to all of your other negative qualities. As Alter is gonna say in chapter 26, the ability to overcome yourself comes from joy. The gas in the tank, if you will, is joy. So on a purely practical level, a lack of joy means you will fail in serving Hashem. The idea that you can serve Hashem without joy is like a, it's like, um, what is it? It's, it's, it's a nice fantasy, but it doesn't exist really. Because the more your nature and habits and are an obstacle, the more you're stuck there. And the only way to get out of that is to have joy. Joy is the thing that allows you to get past that. So that's a practical thing. Another thing is, is that when a person does not have joy, that means there's a disconnect between them and the activity that they're doing. In a way similar to pleasure. If you are not joyous in an activity, then you are not really connected holistically with what you are doing. And since God has an interest in connecting to you through your service, not just like, it's like, I have no interest in, connect, I have no interest in connecting with the guy who delivers my mail. I just want the mail delivered. But I do have an interest in connecting to my children. And so therefore, if you're interested in connecting to someone and they're doing things, but there's not lack of joy, then, then that indicates a disconnect. Um, and the third thing, which is the thing I started with, is joy is the joy enables a person to act, or um, it's a combination of enables and, and reveals, but brings out the fact that a person is a godly being. You know, it's just the joy in and of itself, not as a means. The other first two things I said were like joy is a means to something else, or joy is it has some sort of value outside the joy, but joy itself. Um, reveals and brings out the, the, the divinity and godliness in the person. So in as much as you know, God wants us to be godly, and we want to be godly, then joy is important.
because that that is just the revelation of godliness. So it's not so much that like Hashem cares if we serve with joy. It's like in order to have that connection, there needs to be. Well, Hashem cares. So Hashem cares. Hashem cares about us being connected, and that entails joy. Hashem cares about us being godly, and that 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 in a certain sense is what joy is all about. So I haven't really answered your question of is it for God or is it for us. Yeah. You notice why I didn't answer that? Mm-hmm. Do you know why I didn't answer that? Because it's both? Because Chassidus' perspective is that that's never the right question to ask. Why? Well, think about in any human relationship. If it's a relationship where you actually are trying to build any kind of closeness, you take any, any, any preference, any request, any agenda, any whatever, and you start subjecting it to the inquiry, is it for them or is it for me? Does that bring you closer together or does that start to separate you? I think it can bring you closer together. Someone wow. brings flowers for someone else for them. But it's not just for them. It can be. That's the highest level. Because if it's, if it's for them, then I have no interest in it. It has to be for both. The question is how the both interact. See, in this, chassidus is like not for children. Chassidus really demands that you move past a certain dichotomy. Is it for me? Is it for God? Is it for me? Or is it for you? No, no, that is a false dichotomy. The question is, in what way is the for me and for you interacting with each other? In other words, is it the flowers are for you, and the sense in this for me is because I appreciate your happiness? Okay, well that's a good thing, right? Or is it the other way around? Like it's for me because I want to feel like I'm accomplished, and now you're the means to feeling accomplished, right? It there's always a for me and a for you. Like, there's a lot of questions which, like, sound clever, but they're not really. Like, is it nature or is it nurture? It's not like it's, like, like usually things are involved, really things involve an interaction between the two. So a real relationship where people are coming together, it's that what's me pursuing my interests and me pursuing your interests somehow coalesce. Now the question is, why? And what are the limits of that? Or what are the lack of limits of that? And that's where Chassidus is really interested. Chassidus never really answers the questions of for you or for God. It's for both. The question is, how do those... Is it that God has a deep desire and you care about your relationship with God so you care about his desire? Because that's also in your interest. It, it gets into yeah. questions like that. But there's some things we do just because Hashem says to do it. That's, and you don't know why at all. That's true. And, and it's specifically in those kinds of areas that Chassidus says, okay, we have to take a step back. So then why do you care what he says? Why should you care what he says? Why should you care that it's important to him? Well, it has to be something about you thinks it's important that it's important that that's important to him is important to you in some way. And if you don't interrogate that, you won't have a relationship. It'll just degenerate into like being a slave. I'm using the word slave intentionally, mm-hmm. and that's it. So, so really, even when it sounds like Chassidus is talking about it's for God or it's for you, what it's really talking about is your appreciation of, you know, how for you is for him, and for him is for you. How do those work together? And Chassidus actually reveals is that there's. A smorgasbord of different ways those can interact with each other, and each one ha- and some of them, ha- and each one has their own advantages and disadvantages. Okay, um, one like one way to really ruin a relationship is to make sure the person knows that you're doing things just for them, and you have no interest in it whatsoever. It's all for you. Yeah. Right. No, it's for you, and I. It's I get tremendous joy in it being for you. Okay, that's something that connects. So. It's about so the reason. So I answer you the importance of joy in the relationship, rather than is it for him or is it for us. That's why I answer that. Yeah. Isn't there a, isn't a Jewish idea? And I think like the Rebbe spoke about it that like we're supposed to like speak to 
and be upset about them and want them to change, mm -hmm. we're supposed to do that without feeling sadness or? Correct. Okay. So the question what sadness is. One of the things that the Alter gets to in chapter 26 is what exactly is the feeling of sadness? The one thing that I want to say now is that sadness precludes joy. There are other negative feelings that you can, exist, can, you can experience simultaneously with joy. In other words, the issue is not so-called negative experience, but sadness has a unique quality in which that if you want to think of it, joy is light, sadness is darkness. You can't have the same space both be have light and, and darkness physically. Sadness and joy work like that. There are other so-called negative experiences or negative emotions um, that are not like that. You can have joy. You can have joy at the same time. Often translated as bitterness. Okay. For all right now, for our purposes, just for chapter one, is that the key element about the negativity of sadness is the fact that it doesn't tolerate joy. Other so-called negative experiences do tolerate joy, so they don't have the same problem. Abhorrence. Abhorrence is a good one. Okay. Yes. But not to be bad. I mean, that's something to aspire and work toward. It's not a standard to immediately hold yourself to. But yeah, right. abhorrence. Abhorrence not, is a... There's not a space where like, being sad about something leads to like, some sort of greater action or... Abhorrence, that's the, one of the different... Abhorrence leads to greater action. People are genuinely abhorred by what they see. They do stuff. And that can't also be sadness. Well, let's work the other way. Clearly what the Alter Ebbe was redeeming as sadness mm -hmm. is that. In other words, work backwards. If, 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 if sadness, as we go on to say later, is the issue with sadness is that it doesn't tolerate joy, then all negative emotions that tolerate joy and elicit joy and work together with joy, so then they're not labeled as sadness. Sadness is something else. That's one of the issues here is that you have to see how the words are being used. It could be that, and you know, we use the word, we use the word happy for all positive experiences and we use the word sad for all negative ones and that's a little confusing, right? Because when you see something tragic, you should be abhorred. When you're responsible for the tragedy, you should really be abhorred because you have something to do, you have something you can do about it. But sadness is a different thing. And in chat, when you get to chapter 26, uh, he, he, he starts to elaborate. It turns out there, he, if you read it carefully, he has, he has three distinct things, actually. What he would call, what's called true bitterness, sadness, which is really not sadness, but bitterness, and then sadness. There's different, he starts breaking down different types of negative emotions. I say, what exactly is the problematic one, and what isn't? So for our purposes here. Tomorrow, we will no longer learn about our negative qualities and we'll learn about the positive ones. Yay. Yay. So uplifting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I like how dirty this book gets. You have a problem with books looking like they've been used. I do. Not looking like they've been yes, used. I like the outside of my books. <laughs>